As most of you know, this is Biography Sunday. For the past 12 years now, I've taken this first Sunday of the new year to talk to you about our history, uh, evangelical history through the ages. And we always pick one person to focus on, one extra-biblical hero to focus on, to help us understand better why we do what we do and why we believe what we believe. And so today, we're going to look at the life of John Bunyan, and I think we'll be refreshed by his theology and his practice. And you saw this standing up here. Hope you're not offended that we have a book up here that's not the Bible. Uh, This is Pilgrim's Progress. This was a gift to me by a dear friend, David Carpenter. Pilgrim's Progress, as you will discover today, has become precious to me, more precious in the last few months as I've been studying the life of John Bunyan. But more importantly, we want to come to the Word of God this morning, and I will lead you there in just a moment, but let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together. We we come every week to proclaim the excellencies of Christ by the preaching of your Word and this morning, we want to step back a little bit and, and look at this, this brother that you raised up at just the right point in history to accomplish things for you that we are still benefiting from by your grace, things that have helped us understand the doctrines and the teachings of the scriptures. And so, Father, I pray that you would bless this time. May it not just be a historical lecture, but may it rather also be a, a, a blessed and refreshing well of delighting in your word. And, oh, Father, we pray that Jesus and his gospel will be magnified in this time, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. We're not ready to read that section yet, but turn there and you'll be ready. When the pilgrims arrived in the New World in 1620, they were fleeing the reign of a tyrannical monarchy that persecuted any Christian sect that refused to conform to the religious dictates of the Church of England. Throughout the late 15 and 1600s, there were actually two groups of Christians that the crown had its eye on. The first were called the dissenters, or separatists, those are synonyms, basically, for one another. And so strongly did they disagree with the doctrine and practice of the Church of England that they were willing to separate, hence their name, separate themselves from the Church of England at great personal cost. And so they did. They separated from that apostate church. They left England and came to the New World. By definition, therefore, the pilgrims who stepped off the Mayflower at Plymouth Rock were dissenters and separatists. The other group of people who were crossways with the crown were called the Puritans. The Puritans disagreed with the state church just as strongly as the separatists, but they were not interested in separating from the Church of England or moving to the New World. Rather, they They were resolved to purify the church from within. They were resolved to purify the church, hence their name, Puritans. These were the men who formed the Westminster Confession. These were Westminster divines, pastors, men such as John Owen and Thomas Watson and Richard Baxter and Jeremiah Burroughs, just to name a few. All of these men were Puritans because they sought to purify the erring church. It was they who created, as I said, the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechisms. Unfortunately for both of these groups, King James of KJV fame and later his successor Charles I, they served respectively as the legal heads of the Church of England, just as the Queen of England does today. And they were willing to bring persecution or even execution to keep England unified around the official church. And for that reason, in 1662, 
2,000 pastors, 2,000 Puritan divines were forced out of their churches. It was not the Catholic Church at this point that was persecuting these mostly Presbyterian brothers. This was the Anglican Church, a Protestant church. And by the way, this is the same thing that happens in Russia today. We have a team, if you're uh, new to Calvary Bible Church, you may not know that we have a team this very morning that is serving in Ukraine. And there is much persecution among the lands of Russia against evangelical Christians and especially Baptists. But the persecution isn't coming primarily from the Muslims, as you might think. It's coming from the Orthodox Church. And so it is. Uh, So it was in England in the time. It was the established church that was persecuting and even executing these men. This morning I want to talk to you about the Christian life and the path of discipleship is expressed in the Bible and is illustrated helpfully and practically in a book written by John Bunyan, which you all know is called The Pilgrim's Progress. But I suspect we'll not be able to understand the life of John Bunyan and his story without grasping something of the historical theater in which it all took place. So let me begin by offering a short biography. I didn't put any outline in your notes if you wanted to put an outline in. So point one would be biography, and then point two will be Pilgrim's Progress. I I really wanted to spend more time on Pilgrim's Progress. I'm going to spend less time on Pilgrim's Progress because I think you'll be edified more by us talking about the life and convictions of John Bunyan. Let's talk about his biography Bunyan was born in the village of Elstow, England, in Bed- uh, near Bedford, to Thomas and Margaret Bunyan. As practicing Anglicans, when their baby John was born, they had him baptized as an infant in the Anglican church, November 30th, 1628. Note that is eight years after the pilgrims landed in Plymouth here in the New World. In his early years, his poor parents managed to provide a minimal education. It really wasn't much. They sent him to school long enough so that he could learn to read and to write. Otherwise, he was an uneducated man. Attending church with his parents, John learned something of what the Bible taught about heaven and hell. He didn't want to go to hell, but by his own admission, that was a problem because he loved his sin, even as a boy. His sufferings began in earnest when he was 16 years old. We're not given any details, but John's mother suddenly died. A few weeks later, a few weeks later, his sister died. And then to make matters worse, how unwise was this? His father remarried a month after that. John was... I mean, his whole life was turned upside down, to say the least. He suddenly found himself in a home with a stepmother and an irreligious father. He, too, was irreligious. Not long after, John entered, uh, he either joined the army or he was drafted to join the army, serving with the parliamentary forces embroiled in civil war against King Charles. Wish we had time to talk about that and Oliver Cromwell. Nothing is known about his time in the military except that on one occasion he was sent with a group of soldiers to engage the enemy in battle and just before they left, one of his fellow soldiers stepped in and said, hey, can I just go in your place? And John Bunyan said, but of course. (laughs) And that evening that soldier took a musket ball to the head. It was a very close, close brush with death for John. At age 21, he married a young woman about whom we know almost nothing, Uh, not even her name. Some have suspected that her name was Mary because they named their first child, a, a little girl, named her Mary, but we don't know. What we do know, however, is that she apparently was a godly young lady. Now get this, he was, she was a godly young lady and he was an irreligious scoundrel. Now you ladies just don't take any notice of that. <laughs> Just don't, you know, evangelistic dating, no, 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 don't do it. But in the mystery of God's providence, this is how it worked out. Her father was a, 
a devoted Puritan. He was a theological Puritan. His life had a, her life had a profound impact on Bunyan. As one biographer puts it, she brought to him tender love and it awakened his thirst for higher joys. Together they had four children, the first of whom Mary, as I mentioned, she was born blind. And oh, how he loved this little girl her whole life. The happy couple was soon, uh, I mean, they were so poor. He was a tinker, and I'll mention that again later. But he, they were so poor. He says in one of his books that, that they did not have, quote, so much household stuff as a dish or spoon between them. Uh, they had next to nothing. What they did have, however, were two books given by her father. The first was Lewis Bailey's Practical Piety, and the second, Arthur Dent's Plain Man's Pathway to Heaven. Gotta wonder if that set his mind moving, or at least when he was jailed later and wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, I wonder if he was inspired by that book. These they would often read together, uh, this believing girl and her unbelieving husband. What else were they going to do, watch TV? They had nothing but these two books, and so they read them. By his own admission, the gospel truths contained in these volumes never made it to his heart. What they did accomplish, however, was to awaken within him a desire for religion. And so he became, without knowing it, a religious pretender. Or the term I often use is a religious unbeliever. In his new religious fervor, Bunyan began reading the Bible and attending church twice every Sunday. He developed the ability to, to be quite conversant in religious things. As I studied John Bunyan's life, it became very apparent that though he was poor and had nothing really offered to offer society but his sin, he was brilliant. He was naturally brilliant. His neighbors were astonished at his moral transformation but it wasn't gospel transformation. If that's new terminology for you, I want you to meditate on that today. Consider yourself. Are you a true believer? Are you really a son or daughter of God? Has there been gospel transformation in your life? Or have you pasted to the outside of your life or on your gospel tree, your religious tree? Have you pasted or tied plastic fruit to it to make it look like you're a true child of God? And that's all Bunyan was at this point. On the outside, he was very impressive. On the inside, he was dead. Or Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 2, dead in his trespasses and sins. Bunyan, as I said, was a tinker by trade. That means he was a mender of pots, as is normally uh, the definition of a tinker. You might think of him as a metal worker, or today we might call him a handyman. And so such work required some travel to nearby towns. It's interesting, in his metal work, he had to have an anvil, and he had to travel with his anvil. It wasn't too many years ago that somebody actually found his anvil in that area of the country with his name stamped on it. He stamped his own name and the date. Uh, and it was small, it was, and he would carry it on his back. Well, if you know the, the story of Pilgrim's Progress, he had this burden on his back. In fact, one of the, uh, one of the books, one, I remember one of the children's books, it was called um, A Dangerous, uh, Dangerous Journey, right? And I remember when we were, were young here at Calvary Bible Church, our children were young, and as parents, we were trying to decide, should we show this book to our children? Because the pictures were terrifying of dragons and fire, and it turned out our boys loved it, and so did our girls. But um, in one of those pictures, they're trying to depict him with this burden on his back, and the front, the point of an anvil is sticking out of that sack. It's a, it's a connection to him being a tinker, carrying this heavy load about. And so, um, where were we? He was a tinker. He was poor. And one day as he was traveling to a different town, he went to Bedford. He came across three or four poor women sitting in the sun in a doorway in the middle of the day. 
He heard them talking about religious things and decided to join in since he considered himself, I love this phrase, he considered himself a brisk talker in matters of religion. He soon realized, however, that they were far above him in spiritual matters. For, he says, here's his, here's his recounting of what he heard. Um, they talked about something called the new birth. The word of God in their hearts, they spoke as if joy did make them speak. And I wonder, on the one hand, I love that phrase because I see it played out in our church so often. Among the ladies here so often, I hear them talking and they're talking about Christ and their love for him. That's what he heard. By the way, that's what my parents heard when they came here as unbelievers. It's one of the ways they were born again, one of the means of grace. He knew that he did not have the peace and joy that these women had. They could sit there happily in the sunshine of God's love and favor. He knew nothing of that. This had a profound effect on Bunyan's life. In fact, you might think that the Spirit of God may have caused him to be born again right there through this frequent a set of conversations that he had. He kept going back. These women were a part of a local church there in Bedford. And so as he had opportunity, he would go back and he would talk to these women and he would talk to their pastor, John Gifford. But it wasn't long before doubts set in. He, on the surface, believed what he was hearing. And maybe even prayed a prayer, right? But he began having doubts. Years later, he would write a book called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, wherein he details the years of frequent spiritual warfare for the assurance of his salvation and how God finally delivered him and set him free by the power of sovereign grace. Bunyan was greatly helped in these years-long battles with lack of assurance of salvation, I was tempted to make almost this whole sermon on the issue of assurance of salvation. But he battled it for years. He was greatly helped by reading Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. He said he came to prefer, after the Bible, Luther's book on Galatians before all other books that I have seen as most fit for a wounded conscience. Uh, in that book, Luther deals with the righteousness of Christ. Through Luther, Bunyan learned that God's grace was greater than every, any, and all sin without exception. The source of his struggle was early on as he was wrestling with whether or not he was a Christian, he said, the devil came to me and, and kept saying, you would be better off if you denied him. You would be better off if you would let him go. And he said from his heart, let him go. Then let him go. And afterwards he thought, oh no, I've committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And it wasn't true, but he believed it was. And, and every chance he got, he talked to Pastor Gifford about it. And, and he brought every argument from Scripture, every text he could think of, and could not release him from that burden that was on his back, as it were. He really, really struggled. And the reason I was tempted to, if I can say tempted, to preach on a good thing, <laughs> I was moved in my heart maybe to spend more time on assurance of salvation is because I know so many of you have struggled with this. And some have really, really struggled with this. And, and some of you have received bad counsel on this. And Bunyan did too. He said on one occasion he, he visited an ancient saint, somebody older than me, I trust. I've never been called ancient. But he went to a, a, a man who was known to be a godly man, and he poured out his heart to the man, and he said, you know, I fear that I have committed, I really think I've committed the unpardonable sin. And the pastor said, I think so too. Are you kidding me? He referred to that as a cold comfort. 
That's bad counsel. Don't say that to anyone struggling with their salvation. He wrote at one point, he said this. This is, this is what he learned from Luther. And this is what set him free, which is why I'm camping out here for a minute. He wrote, those who are effectually in Christ can never lose him, nor can they be lost by him. There are, of course, many stumblings and fallings in the Christian life. But so many times, as the soul backslides, so many times God brings him back again. He says, the law of grace has provided that the children, listen carefully, that the children shall not for their sins lose their inheritance in heaven forever. Nothing can make Christ let go his hold that he hath of you of heaven. That's old English, but you get his point. You are secure. In the middle of the fierce battle for his assurance of salvation, he found that old tattered copy of Luther's commentary on Galatians. He said it was so tattered and falling apart that he feared that if he touched it, it would disintegrate. Upon reading it, he said this, and this is where the change came. Uh, By the way, if you read Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, this is at the end. Now, the rest of the book is his struggle. He said, I saw moreover that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. Okay, so let me, we're not used to the word frame. What he means is frame of mind. He means your evaluation of yourself. If I have a good evaluation of myself, if I feel like I've been pretty good, pretty righteous, that doesn't make me more righteous. Nor does my sin make me less righteous. For my righteousness, he says, is Jesus Christ himself. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away. Now I went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. I lived for some time very sweetly at peace with God through Christ. I thought, Christ, Christ, Christ. There was nothing but Christ that was before my eyes. He was overwhelmed by the glory of Christ. We sing that song, grace that is greater than all my sin. And this is what Bunyan discovered in Luther. And and by the way, uh, the story is very similar to Luther's, who upon discovering what he wrote about in in his commentary on Galatians, he says the The clouds parted and the sun rained down upon me. He was born again. Bunyan was unsure of his salvation for a long time. Pastor Gifford believed that he was a true child of God and encouraged him to join the church. John Gifford led a separatist congregation. And so public meetings took place under threat of arrest. If you read anything about uh, the... The pilgrims, before they actually left England, they were separatists, and and they were constantly under threat and being put in jail frequently, even wives and children. And so it was here in England at, at this time, which was not, as I shared with you, not much later. It was therefore under cover of darkness in the middle of the night that John Gifford and the very quiet con- congregation baptized um, John Newton in the river. And he says, I was led by Mr. Gifford through the waters of baptism, betokening a death unto sin and righteousness unto life eternal. Eventually, Bunyan became a deacon. He moved his family to Bedford to be close to the church. And one day, he's given the opportunity to encourage the body in a lesson from the scriptures. Um, The way that happened was John Gifford passed away. And another man, John Burton, stepped in. Eventually he would pass away too, which is how 
Bunyan ended up being the pastor of that church. It was the very church where those women attended. They were members of that church, the women who were talking about the joy in the gospel of Christ that first led him toward the gospel. And so they offered him an opportunity to bring the word of God. Brother, would you bring a a message, some edifying word from the scriptures? And he agreed to do it. Oh, what a monumental event this would prove to be. Not only for Bedford Church, not only for England, but for the world. For it was discovered that John Bunyan, this uneducated tinker, was gifted by God to preach. For five years, Bunyan had blessed freedom to preach. He preached not only in Bedford, but in the darkest places of the country, he said. Harrison writes that his influence was unbounded. People came to hear the word by hundreds from all parts. It's recorded that King Charles II once asked John Owen, the distinguished Puritan theologian and Oxford scholar, how such an educated man as he could sit and listen to a tinker. Owen replied, I would willingly exchange my learning for the tinker's power of touching men's hearts. By the way, John Owen ended up becoming friends with John Bunyan. And when Bunyan Bunyan was in jail, Owen pleaded with the king to pardon him, to let him out. And he couldn't get him to do it. His dear wife, his second wife, did the same. And she was an amazing, amazing woman. Wish we had time to talk about her. Um, Tried to get him released on legal grounds. He could not be released. John Owen was, was um, was the chaplain for the army. I mean, he was high-ranking under the king, but even his influence couldn't get him out. But think of this. Uh, If you believe in the sovereignty of God, which I trust all of us do, I praise God that he was not set free. If he had been set free, he probably never would have written Pilgrim's Progress or The Holy War or Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners or that story about Mr. Badman. I forget the name of that book. Because he was uneducated, Bunyan found himself under frequent public attacks as to his credentials. He was thought unfit for the ministry of preaching. But John Burton, who wrote the preface to Bunyan's first book, came to his defense declaring, listen carefully, this man is not chosen out of an earthly, but out of a heavenly university, the Church of Christ. He has, through grace, taken these three heavenly degrees, namely union with Christ, the anointing of the Spirit, and the experience of the temptation of Satan, which do far more fit a man for that mighty work of preaching the gospel than all university learning and degrees can be had. At the height of his preaching ministry in 1658, however, the Lord called him to suffer again. Without explanation, again, his biographers note that his dear wife died, leaving him four children under 10 years old. And one of them was a special needs child. She was born blind. Additionally, he knows his popularity has caught the attention of the authorities. He's been preaching without a license. Sounds kind of silly, doesn't it? Um... I am, I am the last pastor I know of who actually was licensed to preach before ordained to preach. It used to be a thing. You had to be licensed. If you read the story of David Brainerd, he was always on the run. When he went to a home to preach, he would always do it under cover of darkness because the authorities were after him for preaching without a license. Once again, it was the Anglican Church. And so he'd been preaching without a license and presiding over illegal church meetings. He knows it's just a matter of time before he's arrested. As Harrison describes the scene, at any moment he may have to leave all to suffer for conscience' sake. His little ones and poor blind Mary, now in her teens, need closer care than the best of fathers unaided can give. He has besought his God to guide him on this, and the answer comes back very clearly, Mary, 
get married. I question whether he's heard from the Lord, but at least he thought that was the wisest thing to do. Get married. Find a wife who will be willing to care for his dear children. So he's convinced that there's only one woman in the community that he can entrust the care of his children to. He calls her Saintly Elizabeth. And she's, he speaks to her about it. Of course, she knows him. Everybody knows him at this time. She prays for guidance to be, about whether to accept the proposal. She says yes. She becomes his wife and instantly the mother of four children, one of whom is blind, let me remind you. In 1659, the two were married. He was 32. You ready for a scandal? She was 18. I know some 18-year-old girls who could do this. And back then, I think the stock was stronger, (laughs) generally, for men and women. Soon after, a warrant for his arrest is signed. He's invited to preach at a farmhouse in another town. Bunyan accepts the invitation, knowing full well the dangers of doing so. He arrives at the designated place and immediately is arrested and taken in taken to the magistrate. There he is offered the choice, promise to stop preaching and go home to your family or continue preaching and spend years in jail. He answered, I shall not stop preaching the word of God, even to counsel, to exhort, and to teach the people among whom I come. Very similar to John Bunyan, here I stand. I can do no other. Later, Bunyan would say, I could have, I could have in a moment turned around and gone home, but I could not have done it without making a butchery of my conscience. Thus begins for John Bunyan a 12-year imprisonment in the Bedford jail. One of the things that makes Bunyan's life so remarkable is that his prison experience did not diminish his ministry. It just changed his platform and approach. As in Paul's letter to Philippians, he was able to say, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Calhoun observes that Bunyan's life had one goal, to present as clearly as possible the Christian gospel. And when he could... Bunyan preached it. When he couldn't preach, he wrote it. When he wasn't writing it, he was preaching it, even to his fellow inmates and even to the jailer. I think I read that he led a couple of them to Christ. Like the Apostle Paul, he could say, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. And so he continued preaching. And get this, on the Lord's Day, his congregation would show up at jail. They wanted to hear the preaching of the word. And so he would unpack the scriptures to them, presumably through the window of his cell. Now, this is a different kind of prison ministry, don't you think? I mean, normally, prison ministry, we send the pastor to go to the prison to preach to the prisoners. And, and here, the people were, were coming to jail because they wanted to hear good preaching. In Bunyan's case, however, uh, this went on for years and years. Sometimes there were as many as 200 people gathered outside his window to hear him proclaim the excellencies of Christ and his gospel. We need to be careful, however, not to romanticize Bunyan's jail experience. There were times when, when he was racked with despair. And you remember that part of Pilgrim's Progress where giant despair takes him captive and throws him in jail and him and I think it was Hopeful, his companion, and they're beaten. Um, at one point, under the guidance of his wife, the giant's wife, she tells him to take some weapons down to the cell and give them to them and, and tell them it would be better if you just engage in self-murder, suicide. They were tempted. John Bunyan knew that experience. He lived in jail. This was indeed a circumstance of great suffering for he and his family. In his book, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, he confesses, quote, 
notwithstanding all the helps, this is the part where he talks about the benefits of being in jail and how God sustained him in jail. And the same could be true of, Al- it could be said of Alexander Solzhenitsyn and, and Richard Verbrand and, and so many, many others, the apostles. Notwithstanding all the helps which God provided, I found myself a man encompassed with infirmities. The parting with my wife and poor children has oft been to me in this place as the pulling off, pulling away of flesh from my bones. And that not only because I am somewhat too fond of those great mercies, namely his wife and children, but also because I should have often brought to my mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family was like to meet should I be taken from them, especially my poor blind child who lay nearer my heart than all I had besides. Oh, the thoughts of the hardship I thought my blind one might go under. It would break my heart to pieces. Nevertheless, Bunyan was resolved that Christians must obey God rather than men. Whatever the cost. I remember I was in a country that I, I won't name, and I was, uh, was coming close to Sunday morning, and we didn't know who was going to preach uh, before, um, before Keith and the team left for Ukraine today, uh, the other day. Uh, I told Keith, I said, uh, do you have a sermon or two? He said, yeah. I said, keep them in your pocket or in your bag all the time. Especially if they tell you, you will not be preaching in the next session. (laughs) You never know. You've got to be ready to preach. We must obey God rather than men. I got to this one church, the central church of one of those countries, and we met in the brother's room, which is where the pastor and the deacons and whoever was going to preach. And the first thing he says through translator is, brothers, the government says no children are allowed to come to this church. And my heart sank. And then he said, but the word of God says, (laughs) children, bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They will come. And he said, um, The government says there will be no preaching of the gospel by foreigners in this church. But the word of God says, preach the word in season, out of season. And then he assigns who's going to preach, and that was the first time any of us had heard. (laughs) He said Christians must accept suffering with patience, humility, and cheerfulness, for it is a badge of a saint And evidence of one's faithfulness. And so he continued preaching while in jail. But it may be argued that the most fruitful means by which he ministered to the flock and to all of England was not through the preaching, but through his writing. Some of the best Puritan works, maybe almost all of them, were written in jail. God has a sovereign purpose for everything. So let's talk about Pilgrim's Progress for just a few minutes most of us are familiar with two of, uh, maybe two or three of his most famous works, but few realize that John Bunyan actually wrote not two or three or four books, but almost 60. Uh, most of them are out of print today. Next to the Bible, it, is, it has been called the world's best-selling book. Translated into 200 languages, it was immediately successful with three editions in 1678 when it was the first year that it was published. Every author wants to have a second edition or a third. Bunyan's allegory of the Christian life is so full of scripture and theology that it it has been called the Westminster Confession of Faith with people in it. In the 19th century, it is said that virtually every English home possessed two books, the authorized version of the Bible, the KJV, and John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. If you wanted to know how to to apply what the Bible taught about how to live the Christian life, you read the Bible, and as a commentary, you have Pilgrim's Progress. My friends, there's a reason that every home had a copy of this book. It instructed, it counseled, 
it warned and it comforted. It comforted along their long and difficult journey called the Christian life until they reached the river which they must cross to enter into heaven. Wish we had time to talk about that. I want to use the remainder of our time this morning reintroducing you to the rich theology and practical counsel of Scripture woven into this marvelous little book. Listen to how the story begins. I'm just going to read the first paragraph. We're not going to read much of Pilgrim's Progress, but here's how the story begins. Bunyan writes, As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I came to a place where there was a den. Inside, I lay down to sleep, and as I slept, I had a dream. Now, this is completely fictitious. He's writing a book. In my dream, I looked up and saw a man clothed in rags, standing in a certain place with his face turned away from his home. He carried a book in his hand and a great burden upon his back. And as I watched, I saw him open the book and begin reading. And as he read, he wept and trembled. Then, not being able to contain himself any longer, he cried out in anguish, What shall I do? As the story is an analogy, most everything in it is designed to carry biblical truth and meaning. Bunyan begins the story with biblical anthropology. He shows us in the narrative form what the Bible teaches about the nature and predicament of people. His main character is clothed in rags. Isaiah 64, 6 says, all our righteousness is as what? We know from the first paragraph that he's a Puritan. The man carries a book in his hand. It's got to be the Bible. He has a great burden on his back. Psalm 38, 4 says, my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. And then the man cries out, what shall I do? Acts 16, 32. The Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And as you read, you can't help but be impressed with Bunyan's comprehensive grasp of the scriptures. Here we're only one paragraph into the story, and he's already given five references to the Bible. And I've only mentioned four of them. Thankfully, he includes all of the references for these texts in the margin of the pages so that we can figure out where he was getting all of this. The book is full of references to scriptures. And if you get the audio version, it's constantly interrupting the story to read those scriptures to you. Bunyan kept himself immersed in the scriptures. One of his biographers said he was never out of the Bible, either by reading or meditation. I wonder how many of us that can be said of. Never out of the Bible. Normally what we do is we dip with a finger in the Bible, and we feel good about it because we're Americans and we feel good about ourselves very quickly. Bunyan maintained that he drew his theology directly from the Bible. In his writings, he carefully built up and supported his arguments on the basis of biblical texts. He quoted the old Geneva Bible as well as the authorized King James Version, the 1611 And late in life, Bunyan writes, my Bible and concordance are my only library in my writings. And we know he also read other books because he mentions Luther and Galatians. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, who read the Pilgrim's Progress every year as a spiritual discipline. Every year he read it. And he put it like this with regard to um, Bunyan's commitment to the Bible, devotion to the Bible. He said, He had studied our authorized version, the KJV, till his whole being was saturated with Scripture. And though his writings are charmingly full of poetry, yet he cannot give us his Pilgrim's Progress, that sweetest of all prose poems, without continually making us feel and say, why, this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere, and you will find that his blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his soul is full of the word of God. 
of all of the books that I've read over the last several months, that one phrase pierced my heart more than anything. He was never out of the Bible. His soul was full of the Word of God. It just made me want to throw my iPhone away. I was gratified this morning when I got a text from my phone, I mean, from, the, from Siri, telling me that the time I've spent on my phone decreased by 50% this week. And again, being an American, I felt pretty good about myself. <laughs> How much time do we spend in the Word of God? Are we, are we as holy as we think we are? Or are we more worldly than we can imagine? Already we see what Bunyan is doing in the story, right? Back to the story. The first step of life with God is to become aware of our sin and the heavy burden of guilt that, is in, that it inescapably causes. We like to see ourselves as clean and whole. If you ask an unbeliever, do you think you're a good person? Most of them are going to say, yeah. And then you take them to the Word of God and start asking questions. Oh, no, 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 I don't, I don't do that. No, I don't believe that. No, I, I've sinned in this way. I've sinned in that way. I've sinned in, I mean, out of, the, out of the Ten Commandments. I mean, and yet we see ourselves as whole and righteous and acceptable to God. But God, like a good physician, is is kind enough to expose our true sickness so we can apply the true cure. Our true sickness is sin. We have no righteousness of our own. We are separated from God, and there's nothing we can do to remedy the problem. We're dead in our transgressions and sins. What can a dead man do? Nothing. He's separated, he's unresponsive. As Pilgrim walks and cries out in despair with the book in his hand, another man approaches whose name is Evangelist. I love this guy because he represents a faithful pastor. And he comes and he gives the man a parchment scroll that reads, flee from the wrath to come. That's what we say to people. I mean, that's the essence of the beginning of the gospel. Flee from the wrath to come. Listen, if the, if the bad news isn't really, really bad, the good news isn't that good. Flee from the wrath to come, Matthew 3, 7. But the man doesn't know where to go. And so evangelist, this faithful pastor, points him to a place that is almost out of sight where there is a wicked gate. Wicked. W-I-C-K-E-D. Not wicked. Um, and he says, Make your way to the wicked gate. When you knock on it, you will be told what to do. Now turn with me to Matthew 7, verse 13. Uh, you should already have your Bible open. Matthew chapter 7. We find the golden rule in verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is, this is the summary of the law and the prophets. And then verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide. And the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. What does that have to do with the wicked gate? Well, we have to understand that Bunyan is an Englishman, and this is a very English analogy. Here in America, we aren't as familiar with terms like this as, as they are there, unless you're a, a farmer and you have a great big barn I always thought he meant wicker gate, and it was just a weird way for English people to say wicker. And it wasn't wicker gate, it's wicked gate. I thought it was kind of a, a gate made of braided wood, like a, like a wicker couch or a wicker chair. I've always thought that. I taught my children that's what it was. <laughs> and Shana told me that this week when I was talking about it. 
but I wasn't even close. So the other day I was having my quiet time about a week ago, and um, of course I got bunion in my head all the time, and I thought, you know, I'm trying to, I, I need to be precise, I can't be vague, I can't be fuzzy, what in the world's a wicket gate? So I went, <laughs> this added to my time online, Siri, <laughs> what is a wicket gate? And up comes this picture. And it's really interesting. Imagine a fortified English estate. This, this is what came up. It is an entrance built into the outer wall that presents a huge gate that can be variously opened or closed to let in a horse-drawn carriage or a group of soldiers or people or whatever. But that's not the only entrance you'll find here. A little to the side, you'll see another, much smaller entrance in the wall. It's no larger than a small door able to admit one person at a time. And in England, the larger entrance is called the main gate, and the much smaller entrance is called, guess what, the wicket gate. I asked my children, what's a wicket gate? And they all, they all took turns getting it wrong, except Mike. Mike looked up from his cell phone <laughs> and said, Dad, it's like a, like a small door in the side of a castle. And I said, how do you know that? <laughs> and he said, because I've read Redwall. <laughs> you young people know what that is, right? The fictional tale of a mouse with a sword. Never mind. <laughs> Scary. <laughs> Bunyan's original audience would have immediately caught the meaning, the meaning here. In it painted the words of Jesus as a picture that they would have intuitively understood. This is the value of the pilgrim's progress. He takes rich, deep biblical truth and does an, a phenomenal job at making it intuitive and understandable. And, and here's the meaning of what Jesus was saying. If you want your burden of sin removed, ignore the path of the crowds and the masses of religious people who stroll through the big gate. It is an easy way, but it is the wrong way. The sign over, over the big gate says, this way to heaven. And so does the smaller gate. Just know that the sign over the big gate is a lie. It's wrong. It's the easy way, but it's the wrong way. Rather, enter through the narrow gate, the wicked gate, because it, is, it, it alone leads to life. And few there are who find it. My friends, this command and warning of our Lord Jesus is just as relevant and necessary today as it was in Bunyan's day, as it was in Jesus' day. It was, it was the very message that John Bunyan gave his whole life to. This is what he preached. The world thinks the, the path to God is easy. They say it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you believe something and believe in it earnestly. It's if you try your best and live up to the morality that you subscribe to. In the end, if you do that, you'll all go to heaven. We'll all go to heaven. We'll all enjoy the sweet presence of a tolerant, non-judgmental God. But that's not what God says. It's not what God says. I want to say, especially to you young people, as you grow and especially as you leave home and go to college, the social pressure on you to follow the masses through the main gate will often feel like more than you can resist. Interesting, in one of the amplified versions of the story, I think it's, it's been added in that part where they are under giant despair's control and in that cell where they are tempted to commit suicide. Um, Hopeful looks at, at, uh, at Christian, Pilgrim, who is now called Christian, and he says, Hey, Christian, I had a thought. When we first came here, there wasn't hardly anybody in this jail, in this dungeon. And now there's a lot of people. Where did they come from? And Christian says, oh, you don't know. There is, a, a, um, there is a, a faster way in, a different way in. 
There's a back door that comes directly into the dungeon. And it's connected to university. From the university, you go right into Doubting Castle. And so it will be with you. You'll be laughed at. You'll be scorned. You'll be called a bigot and intolerant if you make your beliefs known. But can I tell you this? This is how it's always been for God's faithful saints. And the only way to eternal life is still the narrow way. In fact, this is the dynamic we discover in Bunyan's story. A man named Obstinate comes along and immediately he begins berating Pilgrim as a fool and demands that he return home. But Pilgrim resists and presses forward toward the wicked gate. As he travels, he meets a man named Worldly Wise Man who also seeks to discourage Pilgrim on his journey. He tells him that there's a shorter and easier way to heaven, the celestial city, and that if he would simply take a side path that leads up to the top of Mount Sinai, see where he's going, he will find the city of morality where he can meet a man who will show him a shortcut that is easier and a lot less dangerous. The name of the man is Mr. Legality. Think law, which is why I prayed as I did this morning about the law. He offered the same path to heaven as the scribes and the Pharisees did in Jesus' day. But Paul explains in Romans 3, 20 through 23, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who, what's the next word? Who believe. Eventually, Pilgrim makes it to the wicked gate. After Evangelist shows up, the pastor, and says, catches, his, catches him on the wrong path. And he disciplines him. He rebukes him out of love and puts him back right on the right path. Eventually, he makes it to the wicket gate and discovers a sign posted over the gate. And here's what it reads. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. <laughs> Matthew 7, 7. Bunyan was a Puritan and a Calvinist, which means he not only believed in God's sovereignty over salvation, he also believed in the free offer of salvation. And we see it here, both of them. On the one hand, Pilgrim knocks on the gate in response to the free offer, but then when Goodwill, who represents Christ here, or maybe Grace here, when he, when he appears, he opens the gate for Pilgrim. He opens the gate for Pilgrim, and then he grabs him and pulls him in. Pilgrim comes through the gate, and not long after, toward a hill. He's running upward now, where the cross stands on this hill. And a little way down from there, Bunyan says, there is an open tomb, an open grave. And Bunyan writes, And I saw in my dream that just as Christian approached the cross, his burden suddenly came loose from his shoulders and fell off his back. Notice he, he does nothing. And it began to roll down the hill until it tumbled into the open tomb to be seen no more. That's where your guilt and shame goes. Into the very tomb of Christ. He died for those sins. He rose out of the tomb. Can I say it as an allegory? To make room for your sin. This is where Pilgrim's journey begins in earnest. Immediately he's stripped of his tattered clothing and dressed in bright new garments. You know what that is? The righteousness of Christ. The mark is placed on his forehead, identifying him to God as one of his own. He's handed a scroll, which he will, he's, he's uh, required to study until he arrives in the celestial city. One of the things that always confused me about the story was this scroll. He's climbing the hill difficulty. If you've got difficulties, that's, that's where you fit in. Climbing the hill difficulty, but 
But the master has set a, an arbor, a place of temporary rest, and, and, uh, and Christian stops there to rest, and he falls asleep. Not supposed to sleep, he's supposed to stay awake. Supposed to rest and stay awake, and then keep moving. Don't be lazy. And then he, gets, he wakes up. Somebody, an angel comes and shakes him and wakes him up and, and says, hey, what are you doing? You're not supposed to sleep. And so he, he takes off running up the hill again. And when he gets to the top of the hill, he reaches for a scroll and it's gone. And he realizes that he lost it. So he has to run all the way back to the arbor. He's trying to make it to this house where he'll be safe. And some guys come running by and say, stop, don't go that way. Don't go that way. There are lions up there protecting that house. And so he starts doubting. And so what was the scroll about? He goes back and he finds the scroll. Here's what the scroll's about. The scroll represents the promises of God that remind you of the gospel and the assurance that you have in Christ. And as believers, Bunyan is saying, you should spend your whole life meditating on those things. Or Jerry Bridges would say, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Because if you lose that, it won't be long before you lose prayer, before you lose reading your Bible, before you lose fellowship, before you, you start allowing your heart to be overwhelmed by sin. So this is merely the beginning of the story. He engages further in, as he goes on. All kinds of things happen, and we don't have time to look at them. But along the way, he's taught the value of the local church, the Lord's Supper, he engages in a frightening spiritual battle against Apollyon, the devil, the enemy of our souls, which is why I had Russ read Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. He learns the discipline of meditating on God's promises. He witnesses the danger of loving money and the approval of men. He meets a Christian who is almost destroyed by lust, and he learns how it was defeated. He watches helplessly as his dear friend is martyred. He suffers the consequences of spiritual laziness. He falls into hopelessness, depression, and despair, only to discover much, much later that he possessed the key that would enable him to escape the, 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 the dungeon and the castle. And you know what the key was? It was in his chest pocket over his heart. The key was the word of God, the promises of God. And it's amazing how, how Bunyan describes it as he takes out the key, Hopeful says, do you think it will fit? And he reaches over and the key changes size so that it fits perfectly. He goes to the next gate and it changes again. There's a promise for every binding, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Despair, depression, temptation. And so he finds the key that he always had. In the end, he comes to the river of death, and we are shown how different people respond to dying. It's very moving if, if you realize what Bunyan is, is teaching. Two good saints can come to death and respond entirely differently, and there needs to be grace. And so here was, I think, hopeful and Christian. They come to the river, and they are told, you must cross the river, or you cannot enter into the celestial city. And they start crossing, and Hopeful, Hopeful kind of dances right along. He, he doesn't have a hard time at all. And Christian, he really struggles, really struggles. And Hopeful, Hopeful helps him until they make it to the other side. And the story goes on from there, at least a little ways. And then there's, that's only part one, by the way. And I haven't read the full second part, Christiana's story, but I did read the cliff notes of it in the past week or so. I was so impressed by it. The big difference between Pilgrim's Progress and Christiana's story is Pilgrim largely is walking alone. In Christiana's story, she's, it's her whole family. And the family keeps getting bigger. She, their daughters keep getting, and sons keep getting married. People come to Christ, and they're going along. And some of the things that, that, that uh, Pilgrim struggled with, she, she went right through, and some of the things he went through, she struggled with, and it's a beautiful, beautiful story. But it's not just a story. And I would say, mom and dads, 
You need help training your children, young and old. Not just moms and dads, husbands and wives, singles. You have trouble thinking about what your Christian life should look like? What does it look like to live the Christian life in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord? I commend to you the story of Pilgrim's Progress and the example of its author, John Bunyan. But more importantly, I would plead with you, any of you in this room or who are hearing my voice right now, do you understand how easy it is to get sucked into the flow that goes through the great big gate that leads to destruction. And your friends are going there and they want you to go along. And you've been going along and it's been fun. And yet you know in your heart of hearts that your soul is full of guilt and shame because you can't escape the reality that there is a God and he has spoken. You knew that. As soon as you were able to think any cognitive thought, you knew there was a God. You know it now. And you've been running from him. And I would say to you, stop running. Stop running. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. Don't be one of the many. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And few there are who find it. It is hard, not because it's hard to earn. You don't earn. It is given to you freely as a gift. It's hard because you have to say no to your friends. No to your own heart. And yes to Jesus. I plead with you. Would you come to him? He he invites you. Come to me, all of you who are weary and are burdened with a heavy load, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You can find in Jesus Christ the salvation that your soul desires. But you must come to him. You must knock. You must ask. You must seek. If you ask him, he will open the door and grab you by the shirt tails and pull you in and never cast you out. Come to him and say, Lord, I have nothing to offer you but my sin. Will you receive me? And he will. Unto everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, thank you. For this reminder of the gospel, so simple, so beautiful, and it leads to everlasting life. Pray that you would send your spirit to save some and encourage others. And thank you, Father, for the encouragement and exhortation and conviction. This has all been to me over these past many weeks. Be glorified in the change that is wrought in our church and in the lives of those who hear, for we pray it in Jesus' name.